Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 10.2 The Decor of a Fancy Tomb Welcome back to 21, everybody. Before we get started this week, I have a quick exciting announcement to make. I will be starting my master's degree in ancient history here in a couple weeks, so I just wanted to give you guys a heads up to that situation. There might be a few weeks sometime during the upcoming semesters where I'm unable to do an episode because of homework. I'll do my best to let you guys know if a week like that happens, so there's not just a random week where I don't put out an episode. But who knows, something might happen, something might come up, and I'll be unable to do an episode that week. So I appreciate your patience, and I appreciate everybody who listens to this show, and thank you in advance for working with me as I try to juggle both school and this show. It's going to be a lot of research, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm very excited for it. Alright, back to our story. Last week we introduced the tenth wonder of the ancient world, the mausoleum of Mausolos at Halicarnassus, an elaborate tomb constructed for King Mausolos of the Korea people. This tomb was so spectacular that we still use the word mausoleum, which we get from King Mausolos, today to describe elaborate above-ground tombs. While certainly not the largest of the wonders of the ancient world, it is one of the most exquisite in its decor. This week, we will examine the work of those four Greek sculptors that we looked at last week to see what made the mausoleum so attractive to the ancient world in the first place. To start, we will begin with what surrounded the mausoleum. On the stepped basement leading up to the stone platform where King Mausolos was to be buried, stone lions stood guard. All along the outer wall of the courtyard, there were depictions of gods and goddesses. Now I would assume that these would have been depictions of the Greek gods and goddesses, in keeping with the fascination of everything Greek for King Mausolos and Queen Artemisia, but it's possible that they were also some local deities and on each corner of the courtyard, heavily armed stone horsemen stood watch, keeping an eye on everyone and everything inside the courtyard. Such lavish and exquisite guards for a tomb. But it doesn't stop there. As we learned from Pliny the Elder last week, the mausoleum was broken into three sections, each equal in height. The first, and lowest, was the tomb itself. Above that were columns and statues, and above that, the pyramid roof. The tomb itself was a massive marble square. This marble square had some of the most exquisitely carved reliefs anywhere in the ancient world. Now these reliefs were different than the ones which, say, decorated some tombs in ancient Egypt. While those were carved into the stone, the reliefs on the mausoleum of Mausolos were carved almost out of the stone. The figures and scenes which are depicted pop off the side of the mausoleum in almost lifelike quality. They truly are beautiful. 
This is quite impressive because the stone was the tomb. There was no room for error. It's not like you could just knock out a wall and replace it if you didn't like what you saw, or if somebody made a mistake. But what the finished product came out to be, no one could have expected it. When Queen Artemisia ordered lifelike reliefs carved into the side of her dead husband's tomb, that is exactly what she got. Now, unfortunately today, we do not know what all the reliefs covering the tomb looked like. Two sides have been lost to history, and sadly no one made a detailed description of the reliefs. However, archaeologists have recovered a few fragments which once decorated the tomb. I have their pictures up on the website. And of course, they depicted something Greek. One side of the tomb had carvings and reliefs showing the battle of the centaurs versus the Lapith. This was a mythical Greek battle between the centaurs, which are half men, half horses, and the Lapith, which were the humans who fought against them. Another side of the tomb had carvings of the Greeks in combat with the Amazons. This was another mythical Greek battle. The Amazons were a tribe of warrior women who were some of the greatest warriors in Greek mythology. Now, considering both of the reliefs that we know decorated the Mausoleum of Mausolos depicted action scenes from Greek mythology, it would make sense if the other two sides showed similar scenes. Everything else that we know about King Mausolos, Queen Artemisia, and their love of all things Greek, this is probably a safe bet. But something unique that we do know about the two reliefs is that while they are Greek mythology, they were both original scenes when they were made. As in, this was the first place that these two scenes were depicted anywhere in the ancient world. And it's highly possible that they were adapted into Greek mythology because they were on the Mausoleum of Mausolos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now sadly, there is no way for us to know which sculptor worked on which side, or if they collaborated somewhat with their different scenes, but their work is amazing. I highly recommend going to the website and checking out the pictures for yourself. Even today, more than 2,000 years later, they are beautiful and awesome. It's no wonder they drew a crowd. Above the tomb itself, there were 36 columns. And in between each of these columns, there were statues. These statues were quite large, measuring up to 36 feet in height. What these statues were, no one's really sure. It's possible that they depicted Greek gods and goddesses. However, a few heads have been recovered, and they all depict females. One theory states that each statue represents a different city, town, or territory which King Mausolos and Queen Artemisia had brought under Holocarnassus' influence. But there's no way to know for sure. What we do know is that these columns and statues were more eye candy than anything else. They stood in front of the massive stone block behind them. This massive stone block supported the massive roof of the mausoleum. The roof itself was just as impressive as either of the other two sections. 
The roof was essentially a stepped pyramid, just like the tomb of Pharaoh Djoser at Saqqara that we learned about when we talked about the Great Pyramids a little while ago. The roof was rectangular in shape, with a wide bottom and 24 steps leading up to the top. On top of the roof stood the most exquisite carving of the entire tomb. It's called the Quadriga, carved by one of the designers of the mausoleum itself, Pythios. It is truly the crowning jewel to the entire project. The Quadriga is a chariot drawn by four massive horses. The chariot is so large, though, it's more like a tank than a chariot. The entire statue was six and a half meters or 21 feet long and five meters or 16 feet high. The detail on the statue was perhaps the greatest of the entire mausoleum. We know this because one of the horse's heads has survived for us to examine today, and I have a picture of that head up on the website. On this horse's head, there is a bronze bridle. It's safe to assume that the other horses of the Quadriga would have had similar bridles. But what really makes the Quadriga stand out is the exquisite craftsmanship on display. The horse head that we have today is almost perfect. It's almost like someone took a mold of a live horse and used it for the Quadriga. It's as lifelike a sculpture as you can make with stone. The horse's head is up and turned slightly to the left. This signifies power and energy. This horse is ready to pull its chariot. Its eyes are bulbous, almost popping out of its head. The mane flows elegantly down both sides of its neck. The muscles are strong and prominent, and you can see veins running throughout. The teeth are perfect, and the horse's tongue is the same. Down by the horse's shoulders, there is a strip which would have been part of a harness, which would have attached the horse to the chariot. This was a typical harness in the ancient world for a four-horse-drawn chariot. There are even traces of paint, showing that once this statue was painted lifelike as well. If you approached the recently finished mausoleum, the Quadriga would have certainly looked lifelike and real, just frozen in time. The horse's head is so spectacular that C.T. Newton the archaeologist who rediscovered the site of the Mausoleum of Mausolos wrote this about its excavation. After being duly taken out, he, the horse's head, was placed on a sledge and dragged towards the sea by 80 Turkish workers. On the walls and roofs of the houses we were sitting were the veiled ladies of Borodom. They had never seen anything so great before and the beauty of the statue surpassed the reserve imposed by Turkish etiquette. The ladies of Troy, watching the wooden horse enter the breach, would not have been more astonished. This is seriously high praise. The Trojan horse's beauty was beyond legendary. That's part of the reason the Trojans allowed it into the city in the first place. So for someone to say that the beauty of the head of what was once part of the Quadriga 
surpassed that of the Trojan horse. I can only imagine the impression it made on those who found it. As if the quadriga wasn't awesome enough, there were statues of Queen Mausolos and Queen Artemisia driving the chariot. These statues, just like the rest of the quadriga, are larger than life, but incredibly lifelike as well. The completed mausoleum was spectacular. This was always the one wonder of the original seven, which I thought did not belong on that list. Before I started this show, I was aware of structures like the Ishtar Gate and Abu Simbel, and wondered what made the mausoleum of Mausolos so special. What gave it a spot on the list of seven wonders of the ancient world? But not those. Was it purely a location and timing thing? I mean, it was built fairly close to Greece, and the main historians who composed the original list of seven wonders of the ancient world were Greek. But since I've been studying it more intensely over the past few weeks, I have to say my opinion has changed. The Mausoleum of Mausolos is more than deserving of its spot on the list of seven wonders of the ancient world. Crowning the hilltop of one of the most prosperous cities on the Mediterranean, the mausoleum must have looked like it was suspended on the clouds. Capped with the completed and painted quadriga, all the statues and columns, and the intimate reliefs and carvings on the tomb itself, the mausoleum of Mausolos is certainly one of the most personal and intimate wonders of the ancient world. After King Mausolos died, Queen Artemisia ruled Korea herself for two years before she too passed away from grief. Sadly, she never got to see the completed mausoleum for her husband. However, despite the fact that both the king and queen were dead, the workers continued on the mausoleum. Pliny the Elder describes why this was the case. They did not leave their work, however, until it was finished, considering that it was at once a memorial of their own fame and of the sculptor's art, and, to this day even, it is undecided which of them has excelled. I honestly severely doubt something like this would happen today. Even though both the king and queen were dead, which meant that whatever payment the workers were receiving most likely stopped, the workers continued, more concerned about their reputations than payment. Once the mausoleum was completed in 350 BC, the bodies of both King Mausolos and Queen Artemisia were placed inside the mausoleum. Clearly it attracted many different people from all over the world who came to awe at this mausoleum. But unlike the Pharos or the Great Pyramids, the history of the mausoleum of Mausolos is rather short. Now that doesn't mean it didn't stand for a long time, which it did. It's just that with the balance of power moving from Persia and Greece further west to Rome, the mausoleum of Mausolos and Artemisia kind of just disappears. It did survive the first test though, the siege of Halicarnassus by Alexander the Great in 334 BC. To me, 
This shows again the reverence Alexander had for the beauty of other cultures, even if he had just conquered them. He did the same thing with the new temple to Jehovah at Jerusalem we looked at just a few weeks ago. But it wasn't just Alexander and his men who came into the city and left the mausoleum alone. Multiple times in the first century BC, pirates came and ransacked the city. Halicarnassus was an obvious target for pirates. It was incredibly wealthy at one point, and there was plenty of treasure to be found there. But again, despite these raids, the mausoleum of Mausolos and Artemisia remained untouched. Perhaps this is because there was no treasure buried in the tomb like there was the Great Pyramids. That was the one advantage that the mausoleum of Mausolos and Artemisia had, say, over any of the pharaohs of Egypt's tombs. The mausoleum was just a tomb. Nothing else was buried there. So the usual suspects who traveled to Egypt in search of buried treasure didn't even think twice about the mausoleum of Mausolos and Artemisia. As Rome split in two and the Byzantines rose to power in the east, they too left the mausoleum alone. Even the Arab raiders, when they attempted to plunder all the coastal towns of Anatolia, they left it alone as well. Again, I think this is due to the fact that there was no inherent value in the wonder. There was nothing that the Byzantines or the Arabs could have used from it other than the stone itself. But the Arabs were certainly not going to travel all the way to Anatolia just to take some stone. So for centuries, despite all the struggles and the wars around it, the mausoleum of Mausolos and Artemisia at Halicarnassus stood strong, tall, and beautiful, continuing to draw visitors to awe at the exquisite carvings, reliefs, and statues which adorned it. But sadly, as is the case with most of the wonders of the ancient world, if man didn't destroy it, time eventually did. We are unsure as to when it was destroyed, but it's likely that sometime around the 12th century it had fallen into a state of disrepair. Eustathius, a Byzantine Greek scholar who lived in the 12th century AD, wrote about the mausoleum that it, quote, was and is a marvel. This has led historians and scholars to believe that the mausoleum was already in ruin by this time most likely having fallen victim to an earthquake. It remained in this state for the next few centuries. When the Knights of St. John arrived in Halicarnassus in 1404 AD, they commented about how it was in a state of disrepair. The only thing that was still there was the foundations. They also noted about how the local Greeks and Turks didn't have any legends, tales, or stories to tell why these massive foundations were even there. This tells us that the mausoleum was probably destroyed for some time now. For one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, to pass even out of legend is sad, but it tells us that the mausoleum was probably destroyed some time before the knights even arrived. The final remains of the mausoleum were repurposed in 1522 by the Crusaders. 
the Crusaders were occupying Halicarnassus and heard rumors of a potential invasion of the city by the Arabs. So the Crusaders fortified the city with whatever spare materials they could find. The final remains of the mausoleum were no exception from this fortification spree. They used the remaining marble and stone of the mausoleum to reinforce what was called the Castle of Halicarnassus. This castle, which is now called Bodrum Castle, is still visible and standing today. The Crusaders also adorned this castle with a number of the ruined sculptures from the mausoleum. These sculptures remained on the castle for about three centuries, before being gifted to the British ambassador to the Turkish Empire. These pieces are now housed in the British Museum, and I have pictures of them up on the website. Any other sculpture that the Crusaders found, they ground into lime to make plaster to fill in cracks in the walls. Who knows how many columns, statues, and reliefs were destroyed by the Crusaders during this time. The mausoleum of Mausolos and Artemisia remained hidden from history until the mid-1800s. In 1846, British archaeologist Charles Thomas Newton was sent by the British Museum to try and find more artifacts of the mausoleum. Despite not having much to go on, Newton was able to find what was the original foundations of the mausoleum. He found numerous artifacts in the immediate area, including the immaculate horsehead we described earlier. He also found a broken chariot wheel from the quadriga. But one of the most astonishing finds was a pair of statues of what appears to be King Mausolos and Queen Artemisia themselves. These were possibly even the statues which were riding in the quadriga atop the mausoleum. It's possible that these statues were thrown down from the mausoleum by an earthquake and ended up in the dirt. This would have saved the statues from the destruction by the crusaders. C.T. Newton took what findings he made back to the British Museum, where the statues of King Mausolos and Queen Artemisia watch over the remains of their magnificent tomb, which sadly neither saw before their deaths. The mausoleum of Mausolos and Artemisia at Halicarnassus is certainly one of the most personal and intimate wonders in the ancient world. Most likely due to the lack of treasure anywhere on the tomb, it was able to survive some of the most turbulent times in a rather turbulent area. But sadly, the next wonder on our list was unable to escape a turbulent death. For the next wonder, we head back to the greatest city in the ancient world, at the time when the greatest empire was forming, and we will join two of history's most notorious characters. I am, of course, talking about Alexandria, the Roman Empire, Julius Caesar, and Cleopatra. Thank you.